HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meat in 3, we find out why the bacon, egg, and cheese, that classic bodega sandwich, is popping up on menus of New York's trendiest restaurants. We did a few iterations of it, and I was trying to fancify it. We tried the sausage, egg, and cheese, and then we tried to put charmoula sauce on it. We used feta cheese, and we're just like taking ingredients of the Mediterranean, if you will, and try to infuse it. But uh, for me, it was like a car wreck. Tune in to hear about the wild journey of the bacon, egg, and cheese, from deli to fine dining, on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So before we get started today, um, first of all, I'm getting over a cold, so (laughs) I want to just put that out there. Um, I'm going to try not to cough, but if I do, um, just please bear with me a little bit. but also, I'm, I'm really excited about today's show because it's going to be a little bit different. Instead of just one guest or even two, I have a panel of three different guests. And together, we're going to be unpacking a current topic in agriculture news, Sunny Purdue's recent comments on the viability of small farms in America. So calling in from Pennsylvania, I have Brenda Cochran, a dairy farmer and the president of Farm Women United. Brenda, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Great. Um, And then calling in from Austin, Texas, I have Russell Diaz-Canseco, the president and CEO of Vital Farms, a company that actually ran a full-page ad in the New York Times in the form of a letter to Sonny Perdue responding to his comments. Russell, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me and for uh, addressing this important topic. Great. And then in studio with me, I have Jordan Treacle, the policy director of the National Family Farm Coalition. Jordan, thanks for coming. All right. So 
to get into the discussion, I'm going to set the stage a little bit. So Purdue is in Wisconsin for the World Dairy Expo, and this is at a time when there's no question that small dairy farms are in absolute crisis. Wisconsin, where he was, lost almost 700 dairy farms in 2018 alone. But I also wanted to share some other numbers from the 2017 USDA Census of Agriculture that I thought could really paint a picture of what's been happening over time. So between 2012 and 2017, the number of dairy farms in the U.S. decreased by 9,500. At the same time, the number of milk cows in the U.S. increased by over 287,000. Those are numbers directly from the census that I pulled. So tens of thousands of fewer farms and hundreds of thousands of more cows. That kind of sets the scene. Um, and here's what Purdue said. He said, it's very difficult on an economy of scale with the capital needs and all the environmental regulations and everything else today to survive milking 40, 50, 60, or even 100 cows. In America, the big get bigger and the small go out. I don't think in America we, for any small business, we have a guaranteed income or guaranteed profitability. So he made those comments and he's been under fire ever since. Farmers have been speaking out, organizations that represent farmers, politicians, elected officials. There's a lot of anger. So Brenda, I wanna start with you. You are a small dairy farmer. You work with other small dairy farmers. What was your initial reaction? Well, my reaction was uh, that this was typical language that represents the policies in Washington, even before this administration, all the way back. For dairy, you can go back to Richard Nixon and the Flanagan Report. And when they target that size dairy, that is basically the execution of the Flanagan Report. That was a, a basically a white paper that was not supposed to be revealed to the public that showed the scope of the uh, central planning and agenda to get rid of specifically small family dairy farmers. And that's what we're living, the reality is. But I think what upset me about this uh, commentary from Secretary of Agriculture is the insensitivity, the public uh, seeing the crassness of these policies. Uh, things have never been worse on America's dairy farms, uh, crop farms, uh, ranches than they are at this time over the past five years since the 2014 Farm Bill. So it is typical of policy in Washington, bipartisan, but for this secretary to verbalize it shamelessly in public and not offer remedies, solutions, sympathy, and advocacy was uh, outrageous. Right. And so, I mean, you're saying kind of like, you weren't surprised by what he said, by the facts of what he said. It's like you're, you see that and you know that that's been happening for a long time. It's more just, um, he's, it, it's surprising that he's actually saying it, right, without any sympathy or. Yes, especially against the backdrop of what we know. I know myself, I've been notified over the past uh, two years of nine uh, farmer suicides related to the low milk price. So this is very serious. The problems have gone on long enough. We want solutions, and he offered none. Yeah. Actually, the last time I interviewed you for Civil Eats, it was for a story on farmer suicide. It was one of the hardest stories I've ever reported. And Very difficult. Yeah. Um, I Can you give... I, w I want to um, have Russell and Jordan comment, too, on the... Co but before that, can you give readers a sense of what this crisis for small dairy farms really looks like on the ground where you are? Well, it's a complete um, collapse of, of life, okay? I, I view agriculture as a culture of life. It has become a culture of death. Um, 
I try to explain to people that we know we're supposed to uh, run this as a business, but I don't know of any business that is forbidden by statute, legislation, and administrative fiat that we are not allowed to cover our costs. We still feel a vocational call to be farmers. It's very generational. It's very family and locally oriented, and we can't we can't uh, get vets. We can't repair our buildings. We can't maintain our our debts. We can't cover costs, inputs. Uh, everything is disintegrating. Our young people leave. We all know that we have rampant social problems in rural communities, including the opioid crisis. We sit around here, and it's basically a death march. Uh, my own community, we're losing infrastructure. Uh, most of us have very large open accounts, so our small support businesses are trying to hang in there, trying to keep us going because they need us. So we had a refrigeration businessman tell my husband, he says, you know, you're trying to save one dairy farm. My business needs you to save a hundred. That is the scope of the significance of the circulating dairy dollar in a community. I know most of us look at the USDA figures, which is, uh, you know, Mr. Purdue's uh, uh, department. He can go down there and look at the figures himself minimally. Minimally. Every time a milk truck leaves a farm, we're losing about $5 a hundredweight. In Pennsylvania, my state, we have a lot of traditional family dairy farms, and our average is probably not quite 2 million pounds. So you do the math, and the farmer is below cost of production, about average $100,000 a year. And even using a simple short multiplier of five, each farm is shorting the vibrant rural community of $500,000. So, Lisa, that's what I'm seeing. Um, it's sad. My town is literally in collapse, and so our businesses and young people have left. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jordan, maybe you can add a little bit, um, expand the view outside of dairy. Um, you work with family farms across you know, different industries that are growing all kinds of different things. Um, are, were you hearing reactions from all different small family farms? And you know, is the situation in dairy really unique compared to what other family farms are experiencing? Yeah, sure. So the National Family Farm Coalition, we're a, uh, an alliance of 32 producer uh, and community-based organizations across the country. So we work with um, farms from small-scale organic vegetable productions in the Northeast um, to commodity crop uh, cooperatives in the Southeast, um, corn and soybean growers in the Midwest, and, and, and dairy farmers like Brenda uh, from Pennsylvania to California. Um, and I, I think that in, in many ways, the dairy crisis and the severity of the dairy crisis is um, sort of the canary in the coal mine in that um, it, is rep it is emblematic of a broader farm crisis and rural crisis that we're seeing, but it's particularly bad in dairy. Um, and I think that, you know, for our members across the country, there was widespread condemnation of, this, um, of these comments. And they're not only insensitive, to go into the heart of Dairyland in, in Wisconsin. You know, I was, in, I was in Wisconsin twice this year talking to our dairy members. Mm -hmm. And to make that kind of statement, which is not just, it's not just insensitive, it is representing um, a policy position, yeah. an intention that the government uh, doesn't care about working families in rural America. Um, and as Brenda said, you know, this is not a new trend of the government um, taking this get bigger, get out mentality. Uh, but with the crisis at the scale that it is, you know, seeing 2,700 uh, dairy farmers across the country be forced out of the industry in 2018, um, and the really 
superficial changes that were made in the 2018 Farm Bill, which sort of, you know, continued the privatization of the social safety net in rural America. Mm. Um, there's not a lot of hope uh, in a, on site and on the horizon, um, and a lot of people are really struggling and suffering. Um, dairy farmers are such an important they underline so many rural economies. So it's not just about the individual families that are suffering, but as Brenda mentioned, it's the, it's the local school systems, it's the infrastructure, it's the small independent businesses, the, um, you know, the folks, the mechanics. There's so yeah. many ways that this crisis touches rural economies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Russell, um, just to, to allow you to kind of offer, offer some initial reactions too, um, I imagine that you had a strong reaction since you took out the, the full-page ad in the Times. Can you talk a little bit about why um, you felt as a company that you needed to respond to this? Sure. So um, at Vital Farms, we work with over 220 small family farmers. We specifically focus on owner-operator farmers, and we have, we think, created um, a successful business and model that creates um opportunities for them to be economically viable. Mm. But the key to doing that is to get them to not play the USDA's, you know, go big or go home game. The deck is absolutely stacked against small family farmers when they're selling into, you know, big dairy co-op pools of dairy or, um, you know, trying to compete at a grocery store with uh, big egg companies like a Calmaine or a Rose Acres. Um, and while I don't necessarily uh, disagree uh, with um, Secretary Purdue when he says it's not the government's job to ensure the outcome, right? The American you know, democracy was founded on equality of opportunity, not outcome. The reality is that the system is rigged against the small farmer. And if we could only get out of the small farmer's way, I think that uh, we would see a lot more success. Right. Well, and, you know, your Vital Farms is interesting because the model is, you know, so Purdue's saying you have to get big or you're not going to succeed. And the farm has to get big. And Vital Farms is, your, your model is actually the farm doesn't have to get big. The farm stays small and there's a way to scale. Can you talk just a little bit about what that model looks like? Absolutely. So we looked at um, how we could bring um, pasture-raised uh, foods from small family farms to consumers at scale, something that, you know, 10 years ago might have been limited to uh, a farmer's market in, in my hometown here in Austin, Texas. Uh, how could we bring that to people at scale, uh, especially ones that couldn't afford the time or the money necessarily to go to a farmer's market? And the answer was that there's a lot in our business model that does lend itself to scale, and we could scale those things without requiring the farmer to do the same. So, for example, um, you know, we need, uh, you know, world-class um, egg uh, processing and packing facility that costs millions, tens of millions of dollars to mm. build. It's clearly something that requires some scale in order to justify and support. Um, we wanted the very best food safety experts to ensure that we sold, you know, only the highest quality food with the, the least uh, food safety risks in them. And those people are not cheap. And again, it lends itself to scale. But we didn't need to burden individual farmers with that. Um, another key example is the, the regulatory burden on the small family farm isn't much less than the regulatory burden on a big factory farm. But uh, the paperwork doesn't change from farm to farm. Right. So we could have a few people who were really good at jumping through all those regulatory hoops 
and they could do it on behalf of our farmers. So we looked for ways uh, to be able to scale an organization and manage the costs um, of, of building out a brand like Vital Farms without burdening individual family farms with that. Right. It, it, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know, Brenda, if you can really speak to this, but I mean, the model that, that Vital Farms has is a lot of um, milk companies, a lot of dairy companies do something, have done something fairly similar, especially like in the organic space, like working with smaller farms, like, you know, in Organic Valley, they, I, to my understanding, they buy from lots of small dairy farms, but it's still, it, it hasn't been successful in the same way. It hasn't supported small farms. They're dropping farms like crazy. That, that, I don't know, Brenda, do you see like any, are there any companies that are buying milk in a way that feels like, you know, it's actually working for the farmer? I think, Lisa, there's always the creative option for farmers in specific environments who may be able to do something um, innovative. And I am very impressed uh, by what uh, we're hearing from Russell. I, I commend you for that. But, of course, we're dealing with milk. It's highly perishable. It has to move. It's highly regulated. There are sanitation issues. Yeah. Um, there's a tremendous amount of corruption and criminal activity in the procurement sector of milk marketing that needs to be investigated. Farmers are afraid to speak up. Uh, they'll be dropped from the truck. They'll lose their market. And you've got a herd of cows mooing to be milked, and you have no place to ship that milk. Mm. Uh, I do know some farmers who have, uh, it depends what state you live in. Yeah. And you cannot sell raw milk directly to consumers in every state. Pennsylvania, you can, uh, following certain regulations. But some farmers are not in an area where they have enough consumers to justify that. So farmers at this point, dairy farmers, are still uh, highly regulated and dependent upon what is increasingly a consolidated corrupt marketing system under the control of the Cabra-Volstead co-ops. We want these co-ops investigated. When we did not get GYPSA, a lot of us in dairy felt we needed kind of a dairy GYPSA because this is absolute criminality. Um, yes, some farmers can make cheese. We encourage that. As long as we have people out there doing niche market, it keeps hope and the reality of how food should be produced. But for the average commercial dairy farmer, and that includes organic, because they have just been slain too. Yeah. And part of that is the failure of the government to fairly administer organic rules and the development of certain technologies, um, ultra heat treatment, extended shelf life, has reduced the need of some volumes of milk. And many of us are not sure that's as healthy and nutritious milk as more traditional milk that's perhaps minimally pasteurized, more traditionally pasteurized. Um, I know organic farmers all across the United States suffering terribly right now. The, the suffering in the families, um, hysterical problems for some people really can hardly get up in the morning to milk cows. Um, it's not reported. It's a socioeconomic humanitarian crisis. So these people are so broken right now they can't get their heads wrapped around uh, an energetic new business model. Um, the American dairy farmers should be saved and allowed to heal and transition to the type of food production that the American consumer wants. But standing between us and the consumer is a very corrupt federal government in bed with very corrupt uh, processors, handlers, marketers of uh, milk. So, no, I don't see that as an option right now. Uh, if you had spoken to me maybe three or four years ago, I would have said very uh, positively, yeah, we've got our organic farmers. Right. But they're taking them down the same path they've taken us. 
and I think all of you have kind of brought up this point that in, in different ways that it, it sounds like you all agree that the federal government is is standing in the way of small dairy farms succeeding. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, what does that look like? What are some of the things that are actually happening that the federal government facilitates that is making it harder for small farms to survive? Well, well the very first thing is the fact that the federal government controls the formula. Okay, we, have, we are under a formula, a formula that is deliberately kept um, abstruse and esoteric, confusing. It turns off a lot of people. Um, they you reformed mean the, the, the price uh, formula, formula in the year right? 2000 under duplicitous behavior by Congress. We had a, a, an oversight by a federal judge. It seemed like it was going to go in the favor of being fair to farmers, and then the uh, Congress flipped the formula, and it was quickly uh, block voted in by the dairy co-ops. We are under a formula since year 2000 that deliberately and maliciously excludes our cost of production. At the same time, it takes from the front of our milk check around two to two fifty, a hundred weight to cover what we call the processor's cost of production. It's called make allowance, hmm. and this is getting a little bit beyond the scope of this call. I don't want to confuse <laughs> anybody with this, but the, what I'm trying to tell people is, how are we going to save our businesses? Right. When Congress and the administrations, the USDA, the Secretary of Agriculture, members of the House, members of the Senate, ag committees will not listen to us and change that formula. We need a new way of pricing milk. We are not adverse to having supply management, but we will not support supply management, uh, my organization, if we do not get an equitable uh, milk price in the barnyard. We can milk fewer cows, mm. but we are pushed to produce more milk right. to the disadvantage of our families, our herds, the environment, and our communities. Absolutely. And I just want to clarify for listeners who, who might not know. So when, you, when you're talking about the formula, you're talking about the formula that the, the federal government sets as a, the minimum milk price, um, which is, I, I think a lot of people don't even know that that's a thing that the government does because it's not, it doesn't work that way for really any other commodity. Right, Jordan? It's, they, they do um, mm, for, for other commodities. Okay. It differs by commodity. Um, but it's true, as Brenda was saying, that over, you know, really since the 50s and 60s, there's been a decrease in the role of government in regulating these markets to ensure that farmers, and particularly small and mid-scale family farmers, are, are able to cover their, cop their cost of production. Um, so this, this deregulatory approach, particularly since 2014, was sort of the last nail in the coffin where um, these pricing formulas are set, but they're set at a, for a scale of production that doesn't really include, um, you know, a family scale operation mm -hmm. like Brenda. And so folks, you know, these, these small, smaller scale operations, who are the folks who are working the land, they care about the land, they're mm -hmm. paying into the school system, um, they're paying into their, you know, they're supporting their local, their local food system and their neighbors, um, they are having to actually pay to stay in farming. They're not able to meet the basic cost of their production, let alone make a profit. Um, so, We've seen these kind of cyclical changes and the prices go up and down over time. And usually it's, you know, you'll have one or two years of bad years. You'll have a couple of years that'll make up in good years. But now we're seeing this is the year five of chronically low prices. So what we're seeing is the cycle is becoming the status quo. Mm. And this means that folks who are, you know, maybe were able to save up a little bit of capital for the bad years, they've run out of that. So yeah. they're borrowing against their the equity in their home. Um, they're having to sell, sell machinery for go uh, fixing machinery. Um, so 
you know, this is a similar scale crisis that we saw in the 1980s where we had a spike of farmer suicides and family scale operations getting pushed out of the sector because of bad federal policy. Yeah. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break for a commercial. And then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about policy and solutions. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. So we've been talking about Sonny Perdue's recent comments on the viability of small farms in the U.S., and... The first half of the episode, uh, we were really talking about the challenges that small farms are facing and, um, yeah, lots of challenges. <laughs> and it's, it's really, really tough out there for small farms. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about solutions. So I think first, let's talk a little bit about policy because, you know, it, one thing that comes to mind for me as we're talking about all of this is a lot of people are going to look at this and and say, you know, isn't this just, this just how capitalism works, that, you know, the big get bigger, the small get out, and that's just inevitable? Um, are there, I mean, we talked a little bit about how that's not true because the federal government is not enforcing regulations and setting the prices, which already is not free market capitalism, right, even if you were to argue that. But um, I want to talk a little bit about, like, what are the policy mechanisms that could really help? Um, Jordan, do you want to talk a little bit about that first? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's a complex system, not just in dairy, but mm-hmm. across right. agriculture. There's, so there's a, there's a number of different pieces that need to be addressed. Um, but I think one of the things that we've really touched on today is we need a, a systemic reform of how commodity foods like, um, like corn, soy, dairy, for example, um, are priced so that small and mid-scale producers can cover their cost of production. Um, But that also needs to be coupled with uh, antitrust provisions to make sure that 
we have a diversified economy where there is competition against, uh, between uh, businesses and we don't continue to go into this corporate-dominated agriculture system that we see now. Mm-hmm. We've seen this play out, uh, particularly in the, in the poultry se- sector, since the 80s, right. where we have farmers basically are um, forced into predatory contracts, um, and they're not able to cover their costs of production. And it's, it's not a pretty system. There's environmental, there's social, there's economic impacts. Um, hogs were next. And we're seeing now dairy and beef headed in that same direction. They're, all the indicators show that um, this is a really good model for multinational corporations. It's not good for rural America. Right. Um, so there's a couple of policy ideas out there. NFFC's work, building off of the advocacy and leadership of folks like Brenda, um, we have been promoting um, a bill called the Spectre Casey Bill that was introduced a number of years ago um, that gets at these issues of making sure that the pricing formula for dairy um, covers small-scale producers, their cost of production, and mm-hmm. also limits overproduction. Um, so that's one piece. We need to look at our trade trade policies. Um, NAFTA 2.0 or the USMCA mm-hmm. is being negotiated now. Our, our members are very much against that. We don't see there a lot supporting small-scale producers um, in that uh, in that uh, in that trade negotiation um, there's just another bill out there this uh, food and business merger moratorium bill um, that is really putting in place um, that's the Cory Booker Cory Booker yeah. put this out it's basically acknowledging that we have a highly concentrated agriculture sector and we need to take take some time to stop the, the continued consolidation and really look at the impacts, do some study, and figure yeah. out some policy solutions to try to walk back this, this consolidation. So those are a couple of spaces where we've been actively involved and feel like this would be some initial steps to addressing the problem, but it's, it's, there's not a silver bullet. Right. Yeah, and Russell, I, I think like I would like to hear you talk a little bit about, I mean, I, I know that policy is not necessarily your expertise, but... The way that Vital Farms has set up its model um, seems like such a great example from from what I can tell. I've actually been to one of your farms. Um, (laughs) But I I guess my question is, you know, it's harder to do it that way. And the way the system is now is companies are rewarded for producing food as cheaply as possible. Um, so like how, why would other companies do it that way? Like, will any, will people really start companies um, like yours and follow suit if it's easier to just produce cheap food? Yeah, I appreciate the question. <laughs> I, I want to start by saying I don't think, um, I, I don't agree with the comments about the government solution. And the reason I don't is that I, um, I think if we're waiting for government to adopt policies that increase food costs, they're pitting small family farmers against families it's not a winning formula to get economic viability back. The irony of the situation is that the race to the bottom in cost that's bankrupting small family farmers is producing commodities whose consumption is dropping in this country, right? There's a race away from milk that's produced by this system right. that, you know, that, um, that Barbara, uh, Brenda called, called uh, corrupt. We don't need the government to come in and raise prices on that commodity. What's the result going to be? Accelerating the run away from it. What we see as the opportunity is 
to help farmers get credit for value, which is, a, I guess, a little bit of a fancy marketing term. But basically, the idea is brands like ours, products that are grown, produced on small family farms in a way that is traceable, which is hard to do in a big dairy co-op, uh, command a premium in the market and are growing substantially, double digits, in many cases, triple digits, while commodity products that are racing to the bottom on price and cost are shrinking year after year. The consumer is moving away from these products that are produced in these ways, partly because they are bankrupting small family farms. The answer isn't to bolt on some band-aid changes to pricing policy to kind of keep the engine going. The answer is to evolve to where the consumer's headed, which is in a totally different direction. I, I think what you're what you're saying is though that we should let small dairy farms go out of business. I, Brenda, do you want to respond to that? I, I would appreciate that. No, that's that. not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that we need to help create the right opportunities for them, but not wait for the government to do it. Okay. Yeah, I would like to address yeah, that. Yeah. Um, a similar question was posed to me when I was invited to address some students at. Pennsylvania University about the Green New Deal, and the young man said, look, I've listened to you for 20 minutes. It sounds like all you want to do is complain about the government, and you want the government to help you. I said, no, we have no use for the government. They have ruined our culture, but we have to deal with reality. The reality is that farmers are committing suicide. Dairy farmers are killing themselves because of the government policies that were drafted under Nixon started being put in place under Reagan and have been policy under every administration since, okay, they will not leave the formula. They will not turn over milk pricing to us. We have Capra-Volstead mechanism that we could set a price. Our Capra-Volstead co-ops refuse to set a price because they are corporatized. They should see how miserable we're living, how we can't run our farms, we can't save our culture. We need to set a price at a level that is reasonable for our costs the government won't give us a federal minimum that we can live with, and the co-ops will not set a price above that, that it gives us an equitable price. So we are basically going to the government and basically saying, fix it. Mm-hmm. That's what I told the young man. I said, we're telling them, fix it. As long as you people control the federal minimum, you have to do it in an ethical, moral manner, and they're not. And they're doing this in the name of the people. What is going on for dairy farmers is not applicable to other commodities. I mean, I, I gather it wouldn't be applicable to the, to the business you're running, Russell, which is fine. Mm-hmm. We commend you. It's not going to work for dairy. It's like I said earlier, I know of two niche market or dairy families who set up over the past 15 years to try to break out of the co-ops and the dirty government, and they've both folded. They're, they're killing themselves. They, they're having the problems with dealing with the Walmart uh, marketing. A lot of the milk is industrialized, overcooked, ultra-heat treated. The cheeses have mooglus in them. Right. They, they won't even give the kids in the school lunch program decent milk, minimally pasteurized, full-fat milk. We're still fighting the government to let the kids have better milk. So um, maybe it works for other commodities. I know some vegetable farmers who were former dairy farmers and they went direct direct marketing they're dying because of the walmart mentality amongst consumers yeah so what we're saying is we have constitutional rights that are being violated every day by the federal government on our dairy farms they have deliberately used um, an old policy from fdr 
Okay, under the, after the Great Depression, we had the feds involved in federal orders. They eventually started living up to the intent of Congress using parity. Fine, we used parity. And now we are pulling the rug out from the farmers, not giving us an alternative way to price milk fairly, and saying that we're going to constrain your freedoms. Or we're not going to allow you to protect your private property. Uh, we're going to get you to lose your cows, lose your lifestyle, lose your farm, because we're going to deliberately undervalue that milk. Right. Now, I do want to say that under parity, um, I've been involved with dairy farming with my husband since 1975. Uh, we had parity. We went up to 80% of parity. 80% of parity adjusted for today's values would be, up to, say, about $40 a hundredweight. Okay. We're getting anywhere from 14 to $16 a hundredweight. Okay, when the USDA ERS figures still are showing the average cost of production, including a lot of very large dairies across the U.S., major dairy states, is around $21.66. And I'm not, even, I'm not even meeting that benchmark. Right, so you're saying it's not, it's not about you don't want the price to be raised higher, but you're just saying it's not even meeting the, the cost. No, yeah. and our position is that there's plenty of money being stolen from the farmers and the consumers. The consumers should not have to pay much more of anything. Mm-hmm. Someone needs to investigate why our dairy farmers are going out of business, killing themselves, and consumers are being offered pretty crappy milk and dairy products. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's a good um, point. I think, you know, I think we all, it sounds like, you know, we disagree a little bit on, on policy and, and what, what the solutions are going to look like, but I think everybody agrees that um, small family farms are, have this value that, um, that is different from sort of big, bigger industrial um, farm operations. And on that on that note, you you just mentioned consumers. Um, I think a, a good way to end would be for for everyone to just maybe weigh in on what if if consumers agree with that if they value small family farms, what can they do in this to support those farms? I would like to lead off, Lisa. I'm very passionate about this. Sure. I've been a, a, a longtime member of Progressive Agriculture Organization and. Jordan, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe ProAg is affiliated with NFFC. Um, Arden Tewksbury has worked with consumers for decades. He has no trouble. He gets thousands and thousands and thousands of consumer signatures. He takes it to USDA. He took one series of thousands of signatures to Dana Cole, head of the dairy division, a number of years ago. She would not hold hearings into what's wrong on our dairy farms and how can we fix it. Uh, June 17th of 2019, another round of thousands and thousands and thousands of consumer-driven petitions took it right into Secretary Purdue's office. There are documented photos of this event, and the Secretary's uh, response was there's nothing he can do about it. It would have to come from Congress. Hmm. While we continue to lose farmers, and the American people are not being offered the best milk, okay, the best cheese, the best yogurts. Now, Russell... I honestly believe that you're offering consumers the best poultry products. I can't say that about dairy because the industry has taken us over. The industry. Right. The global corporate industry. And I would also say that we need what we're asking for, and I believe NFFC supports this. We're asking for an emergency floor price of $20 a hundredweight under manufactured milk, well, we get these hearings. We want these hearings into what the heck has happened and how are we going to fix this. Mm-hmm. And it should not push the consumer dairy prices up. Right. Russell, do you want to add what, what uh, you think consumers can do to support small family farms? 
Yeah, you know, I, you know, <clears throat> look, we we are strong advocates for small family farms, and on that, I think all three of us can agree. Um, my frustration in hearing, you know, Brenda's long history and advocacy is that it doesn't seem to be getting her very far. Right. 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 And so, you know, and Brenda, we're we're also in the dairy business, and our twenty plus uh, dairy farmers who produce the milk that creates our butter, I think, are pretty economically viable. Um, again, uh, we're, you know, I don't put us out as, as the solution um, uh, by ourselves. We're a very small company in the grand scheme of things, but it's brands like ours that can create the traceability to the small family farmer and the confidence in consumers that they're getting what they want that will create economically viable opportunities for small family farms. As soon as that milk goes into that big pool, you can't trace it back to the individual, and that value is lost. That's the key to the whole thing. At least that's what we've seen. Interesting. Well, I don't know how far you want to trace it, Russell, but we do have traceability. We have samples taken from every uh, pickup. Also, are you allowed to set your own price? Do you set the price on your poultry products and your milk? Um, so we don't sell milk, and we don't sell chicken. We sell eggs, and we sell butter, and we set the prices to retailers for both of those things, but... For the for the milk, no, we we we, uh, we we pay a lot more than the regulated minimums because the market rewards us for doing that. Um, okay, but it's not working so it's not for a- most farmers, Russell. We wouldn't have these problems. I'm glad it works for you. As long as you're yeah. doing it, perhaps when we get those federal hearings, you'll come in and testify how your model is a reputable model that we should uh, imitate here. But I'm standing up for all the. I'm president of Farm Women United. Okay. Many of us have been working on this for decades. We are not going to sit by and let any more of our farm families be torn apart by incompetent government officials like Mr. Purdue is now personifying. Right. He's, he's just the latest in a long list of people who have no business heading up the Department of Agriculture. He's not advocating for what we need. We want a $20 floor price. We want hearings, and we want this fixed. Uh, I like well, it to a tourniquet, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get the tourniquet, we'll get the vascular surgeon in there, and then if we can save the patient, we'll wheel him to rehab and see if he can walk out the front door. But right now, no well, dairy farm is going to survive this. We'll just keep going community by community and creating opportunities at the scale that we can, and I wish it could be more, but well, right. I know every farmer that works with us appreciates the opportunity. Yeah, well, and, I mean, I think that's really the where all this is there's contention is it's because, uh, you know, most companies are not operating that way. And, it, you know, the, the way to, to ensure that companies operate in a certain way is often policy. There, you know, there can, it's hard to just say, okay, everyone should go create this better model because that's not going to happen realistically, right? Um, we have no other place to ship the milk other than through the co-op exactly. system predominantly. Yeah. And the co-ops don't even have to pay the federal minimum. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, okay, so Jordan, I'm, I want to give you a chance to, to answer the consumer question. Yeah, sure. Well, I think it's, it's really a, a both-and answer. Mm. There's more than one. This is a, a major systemic problem, um, and we need, we need change in many different fronts. I mean, yeah. we're talking a lot about dairy today, but this is, the, the crisis is not, is not constrained only to dairy. Um, so I think that supporting businesses um, these, you know, uh, qual- that, that are investing in quality and, and and paying their farmers fairly is really important. Um, I think we also need to acknowledge that there is um, the, the, 
there is federal policy reform that is needed. And to get there, we need consumers to stand in solidarity with our with our farmers um, and a, as eaters. And so not only going and, and buying food in, in the right places, but also getting politically engaged, um, supporting you know the, the calls for reform that people like Brenda and PROAG and NFFC have been uh, pushing for to to try to make the government listen that that rural communities are suffering and that we need change not just for con- for for producers but also for consumers to ensure that everybody um, can get good healthy food. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much for coming on. I really appreciate all of your insights. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. the opportunity, Lisa. Thank you all for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.